So tonight is a reading service, and what this entails is four acts that helps us understand what the true meaning of Christmas is all about. And we begin tonight with the prologue. The prologue is basically the story before the main story. See, one thing that you may not be aware of, Christmas did not happen in a vacuum. There were other things that were going on before the coming of Christ. In fact, you could argue that it was things that were happening before the birth of Christ that caused God to respond with sending Jesus on Christmas evening. Now, you might be wondering what exactly came before the birth of Christ. Well, simply put in one word, darkness. Darkness. There was darkness before the coming of Christ. And no, I don't mean literal darkness, but spiritual darkness. When sin came and invaded the creation and conquered the hearts of every man, woman, and child, it resulted in a world that is so corrupt, so confused, so conceited by sin, that as a result, the eternal Son of God came into the world so that he could show us what the true light is that gives hope to all of us who have lived in such darkness. The eternal Son of God became man for us on Christmas so that we would not only understand something about God, something about the world, but something about ourselves that so often we do not recognize or even admit to. And so, as we begin with the prologue, we're going to come to understand what Christmas is calling us to confront and to accept about ourselves. And so... Without further ado, we begin with the prologue, The Darkened World. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, 5 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Tim Keller One of the first indications of the Christmas season is the appearance of lights. Lights on trees, candles and windows, Radiance everywhere. The Christmas lights of New York City delight even blasé residents. But the lights are not just decorative, they are symbolic. In the Bible, the word darkness refers to both evil and ignorance. It means first that the world is filled with evil and untold suffering. Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinker who says, we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimist who sees only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark, Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. It has come from outside. There is a light outside of this world, 
and Jesus has brought this light to save us. Indeed, he is the light.
God is coming. God is coming. You know, when you hear a statement like that, that can sound so ominous. It can even sound a little scary to where it evokes a sense of dread, maybe even a sense of despair. But that is not how God wants his people to respond with the idea of him coming to the created world that he made for us, at least not this first time around. Because the way God wants his people to respond with his coming is a sense of awe and inspiration. Because as we'll see in this first act that we are about to read and reflect on, Jesus came to live out a lifelong message that began with his birth. And what is this message? It is the message of hope. Hope in what exactly? Hope in who Jesus is and what he is all about. But of course, that begs the question, what is Jesus all about? What did he come to do that would tell us who he truly is? Well, it's when we understand those two questions that we're able to truly receive Christ the way he intended for us. So now that we're armed with those two questions, let's consider what the word of God and the reflections of these very words tell us to how we should properly respond in Act 1, the coming light of truth and love. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, 3, 5, 6, 16, 17. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Tim Keller. Matthew does not begin his story of Jesus' birth by saying, once upon a time. That is the way fairy tales and legends and myths and Star Wars be. Once upon a time signals that this probably didn't happen, or that we don't know if it happened. But it is a beautiful story that teaches us so much. But that is not the kind of account Matthew was giving us. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That means he is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus is not a metaphor, he is real. This all happened. Here's why that is so important. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it is all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. The biblical Christmas texts are accounts of what actually happened in history. They are not Aesop's fables, inspiring examples of how to live well. Many people believe the Gospels to be another moralizing story, but they could not be more mistaken. There is no 
moral of the story to the nativity. These gospel narratives are telling you not what you should do, but what God has done. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel, good news, an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. Other religions, when they talk about salvation, understand it and proclaim it as advice. Salvation is something you have to wrestle and struggle for. You have to perform. It comes only if you pray, obey, or transform your consciousness. But the Christian gospel is different. The founders of the great religion say, in one way or another, I am here to show you the way to spiritual reality. Do all this. That's advice. Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, comes and says, I am spiritual reality itself. You could never come up to me, and therefore I had to come down to you. That's news. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Carl Lefton Mary was a normal girl living in a nothing town called Nazareth, north of Israel. She was probably 14 or 15 and, as was normal in that society, engaged to be married. But before Joseph touched her, she fell pregnant. Today, that might prompt a bit of gossip, nothing more. But back then, it was hugely scandalous that could get you stoned to death. That was what Mary faced. Not simply dirty looks and cutting comments, but a lifetime of struggle and loneliness and the real possibility of execution. And here's the shock. All this was God's doing. I don't know how you imagine God, if you do at all. Maybe some old guy in the sky? Maybe some powerful force who quite frankly has more interesting things to do than care about our little lives? But here's the God of the Bible. He's a God who gets involved, who turns lives upside down. He's a God who came and lived on earth as a human. That's the big shock. Not that a teenage girl got pregnant. No, the shock is that the baby will be called the Son of God. This baby would be human but he would also be God. He was God's son, who existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit since before the creation of the world. Here's a glimpse of who God is. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He existed as this three-in-one God, 
in perfect love and relationship within himself for all eternity. That sounds strange, and it is, but it's also exciting. Because if this God is all about love and relationships, then the universe he's made will be about love and relationships too. It's not about power, possessions, or just pointlessness. The God of love and relationship has made us to enjoy a life of love which lasts and relationships that work. That's a God worth knowing, and that's the God who's going to be born to marry. God the Son come to live on earth.
it's hard to tell just when just reading through the narrative of Jesus, uh, the birth of Jesus, just how hard life was for the Jewish people. During this time, most of the Jewish people were living in extreme poverty. And because of this, some of them, even when they couldn't afford to pay off their debts, they would sell themselves off into slavery. To make matters worse, Caesar Augustus, or Gaius Octavius Durunius, the first Roman emperor declared a census needed to be taken place. And the reason for this census was because uh, Augustus, as he united the, the Roman Empire, he did so after years and years of civil war, which cost lots and lots of money. And so he needed to take a census to properly tax the people and recruit that loss in finance. There were some Jews who did not want to pay this tax because they were already so impoverished. So a man named Judas of Galilee, who we find referred into the Bible later in the book of Acts, gathers people to his, fight, his cause to fight the census and taxation and also called any Jews who registered a traitor. But unlike Judas of Galilee, you find a couple, a young woman and her husband, with a child in her womb, traveled back to her husband's birthplace to register for the census. They obeyed and didn't cause any trouble, even though they had so much on their minds. I just had a long travel with my kids. And if you travel with kids, you know the better option is don't travel with kids. If you travel while pregnant, you know the better option is don't travel while pregnant. So not only was this a long, hard baby moon of sorts, but there's also something on their minds, the child to come, a virgin birth, the Messiah, the hope of the world. Can it be true? God said this baby is his son, the hope of the nations. So many thoughts to wrestle with. Not only were the Jews impoverished, but they were also starved for faith and hope. It has been 400 years since the prophets of the Old Testament gave their final message, 400 long years and not a word from God, 400 years. And during that time came the rise of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers who kept the law but also twisted it for their own gains. Was a child going to change all this? We have Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem where they will register for the census and give birth to the Son of God. But who else would be invited to this miraculous event? And the first ones invited were the shepherds. And when we read the Bible, we have such a good image of the shepherds, right? King David was a shepherd. Moses, Abraham, they all tend to flock. And even Jesus, as he grows, he says, I am the good shepherd. But while the shepherds we find in the Old Testament are good, the same cannot be said of New Testament shepherds. You see, this region didn't have much rain during April to December. No rain means no grass. And as such, shepherds had a hard life and had to travel to find food for themselves and their sheep. Coupled with poor wages and poverty, as well as having to fight off bandits who tried to steal the sheep, they faced a great danger. Shepherding was a rigorous, dangerous job. It was said that sheep owners were not shepherds themselves. And because of all this, the hired hands, the hired hand shepherds saw no hope. No hope in life, no hope in wages, no hope in faith. They often would sell a baby sheep that was birthed in their travels without the owner's knowledge or just eat it because they were so hungry themselves. There was a very low public opinion of shepherds during the New Testament time. And yet it was to these very types of shepherds the angels first appeared to. 
to the hopeless ones, impoverished in wealth, in spirit, the angels come and declare, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. To the Jewish people, so in need of change, hope had arrived in the form of a baby. It took his parents, Joseph and Mary, to make a long travel and trusting in God and hoping in the promise that he will be the Savior. It had the angels appear to the shepherds who had lost so much hope in life that true hope had finally arrived. This then is our hope too. Do you put your one and holy hope in the Messiah that is born this day? We now come to act two, the arrival of hope and the people who found him. Luke chapter two, one through seven. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Edward Sree Luke places the birth of Jesus on the worldwide stage of Caesar Augustus' call for a census throughout the empire. The purpose of such a census would be to regularize the collection of taxes. For Luke's gospel, the census thus serves as a symbol of Rome's control over Israel and the rest of the world. In a single decree, Augustus makes his presence felt by families throughout the empire who are uprooted and forced to travel to their ancestral towns to participate in the emperor's census. Augustus was famous for reuniting the Roman Empire and restoring peace. In the eyes of many, Augustus saved Rome from destruction. He was thus hailed as savior of the whole world, for he ushered in a new age, the age of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He eventually was called son of God and worshiped as a deity. His date of birth even was celebrated in some parts of the empire as the birthday of the God, for his coming was said to bring good news for the whole world. Luke tells a different story. The birthday that inaugurated a new era for the world took place not in a palace in Rome, but in a little dwelling in Bethlehem. And the real savior didn't bring peace to the nations through force and domination, but by becoming a man, so that he might offer his life on the cross to free us from our sins. Indeed, Luke subverts the imperial propaganda by showing how Jesus, not Caesar, is the true Son of God and the real Lord and Savior of the world. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. That night, 
there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. James Montgomery Boyce The shepherds were nobodies in the social structure of the ancient East. Most people thought poorly of them. They were not able to testify in a court of law for their testimony were considered unreliable. Yet they saw the angels. Why did these people find Christmas? I think there are two answers. The first is that they were honest enough to admit their need. The self-sufficient would have never made the trip to the manger. They do not do it today. The shepherds know they need a savior. Second, they were humble enough to receive the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. No doubt there were levels of comprehension. Perhaps the shepherds did not understand much, but whatever they understood, they received. For we are told they praised God for the birth of the Lord. The shepherds acknowledged their need and humbled themselves to receive the Savior. Only such people find Christmas.
Yeah, as we just heard, the arrival of Jesus is good news. It's great news, right? It's the best news. The time for the Messiah is finally here. Jesus will assume his rightful place on the throne and lead his people to victory. Thing is, not everyone receives this with joy. In Act 3, we'll soon learn people like the religious elite and King Herod heard this news as meh news or even hostile news. In contrast to the lowly shepherds who recognized their need for a savior and humbled enough to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord, we have the social elites who find no need for a savior for they already find themselves at the top of the high social order. In fact, they saw Jesus as a direct threat to the high positions and actively sought to destroy Jesus. Yet not all who are rich and powerful resist the true king. The wise men from Asia brought their wealth, laid them at the feet of Jesus, recognizing him as the true king. The coming of the true king confronts all of us with this challenge. Are you ready to sit down from the throne of your own heart and give way to let Jesus sit in his rightful place over your life? Will you surrender to the true king? We have the gracious benefit of sitting on this side of the events. Let's not fall into the follies of these historical figures, but may we see that there's only one true response to, the king, to king Jesus, to worship him. Act three, the troubling effect of the new king. Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, Come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. John Piper, Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him, and he brings out opposition for those who do. In this story, there are two kinds of people who do not want to worship Jesus the Messiah. The first kind is the people who simply do nothing about Jesus. He is a non-entity in their lives. 
This group is represented by the chief priests and scribes. Verse 4, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, they told him, and that was that, back to business as usual. The sheer silence and inactivity of the leaders is overwhelming in view of the magnitude of what was happening. Why not go with the Magi? They are not interested. They do not want to worship the true God. The second kind of people who do not want to worship Jesus is the kind who is deeply threatened by him. That is Herod in the story. He is really afraid, so much so that he schemes and lies and then commits mass murder just to get rid of Jesus. So today these two kinds of opposition will come against Christ and his worshipers, indifference and hostility. Are you in one of those groups? Let this Christmas be the time when you reconsider the Messiah and ponder what it is to worship him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Carl Lafferton Now that Christ had been born, God's King of the Jews had arrived, and ultimately Israel belonged to him, the whole world did. Jesus had the greatest claim to be the ruler of Israel, not the Romans, not Herod. So Herod had a decision to make. He could accept that Jesus was king over him, or he could resist Jesus. He could push Jesus out of Israel so that he could carry on being the only ruler. He chose the second option. That attitude is what the Bible calls sin. It's the attitude which resists Jesus' rule, which would rather Jesus not exist, which refuses to accept that Jesus is the rightful ruler. Herod had a lot of turf, the whole of Israel. I don't have much at all, but I do have my own life. In my life, in what I do and say and how I treat people, I'm the ruler, it's mine. Except that if Jesus is the Christ, if he's God's son who created me and created the world I live in, then actually my life belongs to him. He has the greatest claim to say how I should live and what I should do and how I should treat others in this world. He has a greater claim than anyone else, a greater claim even than mine. So when it comes to the turf of my own life, I have a choice. I can accept Jesus' rule, worshiping him as my king like the Magi, where I can resist and refuse his rule, like Herod.
And now as we go into our fourth and final act of our Christmas Eve reading service, we've seen that the birth of Jesus always and inevitably presents us with a choice and demands a response. Whether it be that of the shepherds and the wise men who rejoiced with great joy, or like King Herod, who responded with hostility and rejection of Christ because he saw Jesus as nothing more than a threat. And here we are introduced to a man named Simeon who had been waiting to the point of his old age for God to finally bring about the redemption of Israel from their Roman oppressors. And when Simeon saw Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem, he did not just see this small and helpless baby, but what he saw was God's word, God's promises finally being fulfilled. Can you just imagine the great elation and the effusive praise that must have welled up inside of Simeon? This was not like waiting for our two-day Amazon Prime deliveries or waiting for our food to heat up in the microwave. Rather, this was an expectant, patient, and even painstaking wait for years upon end. And how much more beautiful is it that when Simeon finally gazed upon the face of Christ, he was able to say that it was all worth it. And so as this Christmas day is upon us, we now are presented with that same onus to respond to Jesus. Will we fall on our knees in worship and obedience to him, knowing that his call to us may require this waiting, this suffering, or even a piercing of our very souls like we will soon hear of, but it will all ultimately be worth it because we are gaining Christ? Or will we, like King Herod, reject this greatest gift that God has given us through his son, Jesus? And this Christmas, I want to encourage you to choose Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, as we now enter our fourth and final act, I ask you to hear and consider this, the way that we experience Christmas peace. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the Lord required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of every people of Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce her very soul. Tim Keller When Jesus' parents brought him to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, there was an old man present, Simeon, who had been waiting for the Messiah. When the family went by him, he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to perceive Jesus' true identity. He took the baby in his arms and spoke now famous words called the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis is contained in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. 
But that is not all, Simeon said. Luke tells us that after Mary and Joseph listened in amazement to his initial words, Simeon then looked right at Mary and added, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's understandable why the second statement from Simeon is relatively unknown. It has not been put to music. It is not read at Christmas services around the world. But I think it should be because it is part of what the Bible tells us about the meaning of Christmas and because we need to hear it. Why? Both the secular and church celebrations of Christmas focus almost entirely on sweetness and light. They are all about how the coming of Christ means peace on earth. And it certainly does, but it's not that simple. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body if it has a tumor in it? The surgeon spills your blood, cuts you open, because that is your only path to health. How does a therapist help a downcast, depressed person? Often she does it by bringing up the past, getting the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. The surgeon and therapist often have to make you feel worse before you can feel better. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus goes so far as to say, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He quickly goes on to show he does not mean that he comes to incite violence. He means rather that his call to allegiance brings conflict. Conflicts both among people and within people. Just like any peacemaker who has ever lived, Jesus makes people mad and he often causes struggle and strife. Yet, this is the way his peace comes. Um, before we start this next song, um, it's our last song, so can we all just rise?
Amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And now, my dearly beloved, hold out your hands and receive tonight's benediction. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For our eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Amen. Thank you.